Well, hello, everybody. Hello. How are you doing? All right. Great. Awesome. Glad to hear it. I am also and excited about the opportunity to look into God's Word with one another, and I welcome all of you here in the live auditorium and those of you online and in the classic venue in the Moon Campus. And uh, it's good to have the opportunity just to unite ourselves around God's Word, even if we're in a number of different locations. God is with us and in our midst and will lead us and will guide us, I am confident, as we look into the scriptures that we have before us here today. So as we get started, I think it's pretty safe to say that all of us have been in circumstances where we've done something and we've gotten what we deserved. Right? You can probably think of some things. I'm thinking of one guy in particular. I know that he did. He was hired to be the security guard at an art museum. And so one of the things that he was responsible to do was guard, of course, the art. And one of the pieces in this particular museum was this one here. It's called Three Figures. And you can see why it would be called that. And uh, it was act it's actually worth almost seven figures. And so this was a pretty, pretty big deal. And, and here's the thing about this guy. Instead, this was his first day of work. He went in, and instead of guarding all of the artwork, he said he got bored. And because he was bored, he did this. He added eyes to a couple of the figures on this painting, this million-dollar painting just about. He added eyes. And he didn't even do it very well. I mean, I could do that. But uh, that's what he did, and, and needless to say, he was immediately terminated, and now he's facing criminal charges. I think we could say he got what he deserved, or is getting what he deserves. It did kind of, however, make me think a little bit about, about what, what work of art would I want to update a little bit if I were to do it. And so I got thinking about that, and, and here's one possibility— yeah, I mean, it's American Gothic. What's more American than McDonald's, right? It's probably how it should have been painted from the start. Or here's another. <laughs> Seems kind of fitting, given the world that we live in these days, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I wouldn't recommend that you go and touch up famous works of art, or you're going to get what you deserve also, which is like 15 to 20 in the penitentiary probably, right? If you do so. All right, getting what we deserve is what we're going to be thinking about today as we open up Romans again. We have just begun this series a few weeks ago, and we've made our way to Romans chapter 2. So go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 2. Open up your scripture journal or your scriptures, whatever you have in front of you. I hope you have that journal with you and you're bringing that week by week. But Romans chapter 2 is where we've come today. In Romans chapter 1, we've seen a number of things that have helped to set us up and have challenged us, and we're going to see some more of that today. But in Romans 1, we learn who our author is. That's the Apostle Paul, and we learn who this letter is written to, and that's the Roman saints and all believers, in fact, since the time that it was originally written. So it's very much written to us. We see that the Apostle Paul, one of the things that is very much on his mind, and he makes a declaration right away in chapter 1 and verse 16 where he says, I am not ashamed of what? Of the gospel. I am not ashamed about the gospel, about the, about the work of Jesus and the message of, of Jesus going to the cross to take the sin of mankind on himself and his glorious resurrection be on the grave. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and I'm thankful for it, he says, because of what it has done and how it has come, because it did not come because of anything that we have done. It came because of grace. And as we've been talking about, grace changes everything. 
We've already seen that in each week as we made our way along, and we're going to continue to see it as we make our way through the rest of Romans. Now, last week, we saw how desperately the gospel is needed because we're rebellious people. We do our own things. We go our own ways. In fact, one of the declarations or one of the things we pointed out last week is that the overarching sin of all of mankind of, that all of us deal with is rejecting God and serving self. That is at the core of our being, and there's so many consequences that come because of that, and we saw many of those last week, and we're going to continue to see some of those as we make our way along. Rejecting God and serving self. And that self-focus has resulted in all sorts of wayward actions and wayward attitudes on our minds and in our hearts. So much so that none of us are innocent. So as we come to chapter 2, the big question is, how should we live? As people who have sin present in our lives, who deal with it on a daily basis really, people who are inclined to reject God and serve self, how are we to overcome that? And how is it that we should interact with others? And how should we act toward God and even internally as we process our thoughts and as we examine our heart. Well, that's what we're going to be considering today. So open up those journals if you haven't already. Page 10 is uh, where chapter 2 begins. You can see it there. Let's get into this. And as we do, it's not too hard to figure out what's on Paul's mind and where he's coming down on the things that he has to say. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says this, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, or you get what you deserve, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The reality that Paul addresses here is what I'm calling the curse of the double standard. The curse of the double standard. Paul starts here by talking about people who are judging other people. Have you noticed there's a little of that that goes on in our world today? The people judge other people. Maybe you've been one of those rare people who's been able to see somebody judge someone else because of things like masks or vaccinations. I know it's pretty rare to see that, but maybe you've been in a position to do so. Or maybe judging people because of a political position. Or maybe even having something to do with racial reconciliation. Or maybe you've been engaged or seen judgment about somebody's appearance. Or maybe judgment over the way that somebody handles and disciplines their children. Or judgment over the fact that a person likes country music which, of course, seems like the one area it's reasonable to judge somebody else, of course. I think that's the one exception, biblically, is if somebody likes country music, you can judge them. It's in there somewhere. I, I just haven't found it yet. But people are judging other people all the time. And the thing that's interesting is that it comes so naturally to us. In fact, maybe you've at some point caught yourself in it, or maybe you haven't, because it's so easy to dismiss in ourselves. You notice that it's so easy to, to fall into a pattern of judgment on somebody else and say it and, and live it out, and you don't even realize that you're doing it because it comes that simply, while at the same time, it's one of the things that we hate most when somebody does it toward us, and there's no difficulty at all seeing it when it's directed at us, but we miss it almost always when we're the one engaged in it, and we act in this way oftentimes. And Paul is saying that I see it. He says, in fact, it was running rampant in the church of his day, and I'd hate to say it, but it seems as though we haven't made all that much progress since Paul wrote to the church in Rome for today. 
either. At the end of chapter 1, he gave us this long list of things that we fall into, and none of us is off the hook here, but he says that our first inclination is not to admit where we fall short or feel remorse about the fact that we do or try to figure out how am I going to overcome that. One of the first things that we do is we look for some of those things in other people because we tend to feel better about ourselves if we see it in other people. In fact, we might kind of say it like this, if I can point out your sin, it makes me feel better about mine. Or at least it takes me to a place where I don't feel that I have to do such a self-examination, where I don't have to be so much scrutinizing myself because it's like, well, you do this and you do that, and so even if I see my own, we're kind of in the same boat, but if I can point out yours, then I feel so much better about my own because I don't feel like I'm out there in some specific spot all on my own. So Paul is abundantly clear on how damaging this is. Look back at verse 1 again. He says, therefore, which is a word that says to us there's something that this is building off of. In this case, that list that we saw at the end of chapter 1. You can go back and read it if you missed that with us last week. But he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. That's the double standard that we're talking about. Or oftentimes, it's referred to as the H word, the hypocrisy word. This is where people love to criticize the church. And the interesting thing is, Paul says, you know what? They're right. They're right. So the next time you have somebody make that accusation against the church, what you should do is compliment them for having views that are in line with the Scriptures. And then suggest you spend some time looking at what some of their other views are and how they line up with the Scriptures. But in any case, that's what he is saying here as well. The path to a winsome life isn't to try to make yourself better by making somebody else look worse. Nobody's impressed by that. In fact, we're just repulsed by it. When we see it in somebody else, we should be just as equally repulsed when we see it in us. That's not what a truly righteous person is. A truly righteous person, the truly righteous person, if we can throw this up here, the truly righteous are those who overlook the faults of others while they look over the faults of their own. This would be the best, maybe one of the best things you can take out of this whole message is that instead of or whenever you feel inclined to look down on or judge the sin or judge the actions of somebody else, stop yourself in the moment and say, instead, what is there that I can see in myself? I'm not going to spend my time calling you out or cutting you down or building myself up because of what I see in you. I'm not even going to concern myself with you. Whenever I see it, it's a reminder to me that I've got just as much that I've got to deal with. And using it as an impetus for us to look internal instead of external. That's what Paul is helping to lead us to here. Verse 2 goes on. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The curse of the double standard isn't just that it reveals our hypocrisy, it's in our self-righteously judging of other people that we're actually adding to our own guilt. Paul's saying that you're worse off for being in a position of accusing others while you yourself have every reason to be accused because you are 
living in the same sort of fashion. One of the realities that Paul is wanting us to understand here in Romans 2 and elsewhere in Romans is that there is a judgment in our future. Maybe you just saw it there in verse 2 and 3 as we made our way through that. This is where some people check out on God. There's going to be judgment? Okay, fine. I don't want anything to do with that God because I believe that God should be loving. I believe that God should be forgiving. That's who God should be. And if He's going to be judging and judgmental, then I don't want anything to do with that God. And I get that. I mean, I'd rather be forgiven or loved than be judged. Wouldn't we all? I'm sure that we all would want that. But then I get to thinking, it's like, well, there are some things I want to be judged. There are some things where, I mean, I don't want everyone or everything to just go without being judged. For instance, I want justice on murderers and those who are evil and heartless and ruthless and who are full of deceit. I want that. In fact, if God isn't going to punish them, that I might question some of God's goodness. If He's not going to do anything in regard to those sort of people and actions, I do want God to be more than just loving and forgiving. I want Him to judge others <laughs> is what I want. But you see, that just doesn't line up. We can't just have it that way. It's not that easy. You see, the sins and evils that I just mentioned a moment ago, murder and evil and heartless and ruthless and full of deceit, those are all right there on the list of offenses that we find at the end of chapter 1 that we talked about last week. And guess what? They're intermingled with gossip and boasting and being disobedient to parents which don't sound nearly as significant as the first ones, but they're all there on the same list. They're all the result of people who are focused on themselves and are rejecting God. It's all the same list. And if I say that I should be given a bit of a pass because my sins are lesser, because I just am disobedient to parents, I don't murder, or I'm not full of deceit, that mine should be judged lesser, than yours which are greater than I've fallen into the trap that Paul is talking about. And I've set myself up for additional scrutiny by God, and appropriately so, and set myself up for judgment because instead of examining my own heart, I'm too busy examining yours. And what God is saying, what Paul is saying, is that we're completely missing the boat in terms of where we could and how we ought to grow forward. It's a curse of the double standard. And we all fall into that trap. He goes on. He speaks to more of that and, and moves into some other things as well as he goes on here in Romans 2. We've seen the curse of the double standard. Next he speaks of the promise of impartiality. Let's take a look at some of those ominous words in verse 5. It's kind of an uncomfortable verse. Paul writes, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul isn't leaving any doubt about the fact that there's a day coming when what you have believed and the way that you have acted are going to be examined when we're going to stand before a righteous judge and he is going to do this 
work in our lives. Now, when he says that you're storing up wrath for yourself, he isn't saying that things are just getting worse and worse and worse, and every day that you live, you just do something else that makes it worse and worse and worse until finally judgment day comes, and then watch out. You're going to get it with both barrels. That's not what Paul is communicating here. We need to keep this in context. Paul has just been talking about those who are smugly and self-righteously sitting in judgment of others while they themselves are guilty. That double standard we talked about. These are people who are not feeling any remorse for their sin. They're not seeking to humble themselves before God or are seeking to walk in fellowship with God. They're not doing any of that. They're just trying to prove their worthiness by criticism of another person. That is not justification by faith. That is justification by accusation. Justification of myself by looking at you and I feel better because of how lousy you are is basically what this is. And that will never leave you in a place of being justified, but it will bring on you, Paul says, the wrath of God. These are ominous words. They're ones that leave us very uncomfortable, or they should, and appropriately so. And if this is the case, these words that sound so strong from Paul if it's something that is going to help us understand where we stand, if this is what he is providing for us, and they sound so strong, what they actually are, are gracious. If they wake us up to our circumstance and wake us up to our need, they're helpful, even though they seem strong and difficult to hear. Years ago, one of our daughters told us that she wanted to learn how to rollerblade. And we thought that sounds like a pretty good thing. So Carolyn went out and she, she bought some rollerblades. And, and uh, when our daughter was ready to go out to try it for the first time, I just had to laugh because Carolyn had also bought knee pads and elbow pads and padded gloves along with the helmet to have her in when she went out and tried rollerblading. She couldn't have gotten hurt if she tried to. She was so well protected and so well padded. But despite that, Carolyn also gave her the safety speech to tell her how she should go and what she should do and where she could skate and where she couldn't. And she had to stay on the sidewalk or in the driveway. She couldn't go anywhere else. It sounded kind of like stern talk. And uh, it wasn't that she was trying to be stern or difficult or strict. It's just that she was concerned for her. And she knew that if she told her, or gave her the right information, that it would help her and actually set her up for success instead of failure, which is what Paul's doing here. Now, by the way, that's different from how it was when I was a kid. I remember my parents saying to me and my brother, it's like, why don't you guys go out and play kickball or something? We'd be like, there's nowhere to play. And they'd be like, well, just play in the street. Some of you had that same advice from your parents, right? Now, I don't think it was that they loved us any less. It's just, actually, I think they loved us less is, is what I think. But for Paul here, it's the depth of his love and his care for these people that is warning these readers of his of their need so that they might be woken up to it so they don't just continue to go down that path. And this is coming to us so that we might be awakened to it also, where we might be able to examine how is it that we judge, how is it that we look toward others, or what is going on in our own lives that we need to evaluate. And that's where our prayer ought to be, even as we're making our way through this, that God would reveal to us exactly where we are and the steps that he would have us to take. Then he goes on in verse 6 to explain more about this judgment he's talking about. He writes, 
He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Then he goes on, verse 9, to say basically the same thing, just in reverse order. It says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Paul is clearly saying here that there are one of two outcomes that are awaiting all of us. For the one who is righteous, there is a blessing that is coming. (coughs) For the one who is unrighteous, there is a separation from God that is coming. Now, the thing that may have stood out to you as we read verse 6 there is something that uh, can be a little bit startling. Let me just read verse 6 again. He writes, He, God, will render to each one according to his works. And that might sound like a problem to you because we've been trained in the church to know that works can be kind of a dirty word when it comes to salvation, right? Because Paul has already told us that salvation comes by faith rather than by works. But here he seems to be saying something different. Did he forget? Or is he wrong? Or is he changing his mind? Well, no, certainly not any of those things. He's talking about two different steps in the process of sanctification. Sanctification just being the process of Christian growth. He's saying there are different stages and different steps, and he's kind of laying those out for us here, and we need to understand that. When it comes to receiving the message of the gospel and putting our trust in Christ for salvation, we definitely come to that by God's grace and through faith, not as a result of works. It's important that we would understand that because apart from putting our faith in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, there is going to be no transformation that happens in our heart and in our lives. Important for us to understand that. But once that is accomplished, it's settled. Once we have put our faith in Christ and and, uh, put our trust in Him, it is settled. It is done. It is accomplished. When I was a kid, our family went to this really cool church building. I mean, our, our church was cool too, but the, the building was pretty awesome, and it was unusual. It was an old building, and it had these, these big bell towers, and we used as kids go up and hide out in the bell towers when we were supposed to be in Sunday school. And it had a balcony, and we'd sit at that balcony. We liked to sit in the front row of the balcony because then we could drop things over the balcony onto the people who were below. Now, little things, you know, accidentally drop them. You know, just little wads of paper or whatever on on the people who were below. And uh, that was great until one of my friends, he was pretending that he was going to drop a hymnal. You know, he's kind of balancing it on the ledge and pretending like he was going to drop it over until it slipped out of his hands and actually did drop it over the balcony. Now, thankfully, it didn't kill anybody below, but it did land with a pretty significant thud down there, which is the exact moment when the pastor stopped his sermon and scolded us in the balcony for not paying enough attention in the sermon and for being, you know, kind of loser kids. Not sure where my parents were at the time. I think they were in the choir, but... Yeah, he called us out right then and there. Now, I'm not saying that I'm going to do that to you if you're not doing what you ought to be doing. But I am saying that I have experience with how it needs to be done. All right, so, so just keep that in mind, Stephen. All right? 
Yeah, so anyway, now the reason that that came to my mind this week as I was thinking about this passage is because it was in that balcony that I prayed to receive Jesus dozens and dozens of times. I prayed because I heard this stuff about hell and separation from God, and I didn't want any part of that, and so I just kept praying. It was lousy theology on my part because once you pray, that is a settled thing with God. When it's a genuine move in your heart to receive Jesus by faith, it's done. It's, it's taken care of. It's settled. But your position relative to judgment is not. It is not. You, didn't earn, you did not earn salvation, but you do earn rewards. Once we have been made a new creation in Christ, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to take the, the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has given to us and use them to serve the body of Christ, to serve others, to serve God. It's a responsibility that we have to move that forward. It's kind of like communion in many ways, or like baptism. It's an outward demonstration of the fact that there's been an inward change that's taken place in our heart. And just as much as we love to celebrate communion, you should love to be a servant of Jesus Christ because that's what a believer in Jesus does. And that's what Paul wants to help us to understand here. And Paul is saying that when believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ, what we have done is going to be laid bare for everybody to see. And there's going to be this moment of evaluation, this moment of judgment when Jesus looks on what we've done and the motive behind which we have done it. And reward us accordingly to what that would be. Now, very quickly, a couple of a couple of future judgments that are coming. One is this judgment seat of Christ when all believers will stand before him and all of the works, all of the things, the motives of the heart are going to be laid bare and Jesus will reward accordingly. It is not a judgment as to whether or not you did enough to be saved because what you have already done in putting your faith and your trust in Jesus has accomplished that. It's already settled that matter so that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's not about do you get heaven or not, it's about what are the rewards? How is God going to evaluate the things that you have done? There's a different judgment that's typically referred to as the great white throne judgment because that's how it's spoken of or that's how it's referred to in Revelation 20 where believers aren't going to stand before that judgment. That's a judgment of the sin of keeping our distance from God and rejecting God. And those who stand before that judgment are going to be eternally judged for separation from God, all right? So there are two different things in mind there, and it's important that we would understand that. And he says that there is no partiality in God's judgment. See, it doesn't matter who your family is or if your daddy taught Sunday school. It doesn't mean or it doesn't matter how long you've just been coming to a church or going to a church. It's not about that. It's about if you've taken Paul's example and have become a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. This is what we make our way through that is going to set us up for those moments of reward or what is going to happen at that judgment seat of Christ. So is it something that is pretty ominous? Yes, absolutely. Does it require some introspection on our part? I certainly hope you are. 
so that you might prepare yourself for that day. And that's why Paul gives us this, so that we might, in fact, move ourselves forward well in regards to that. Then, there's one last piece that Paul reveals as he speaks to what is ahead, and that is the witness of the heart. The witness of the heart. Let's take a look at what Paul has to say here, beginning in verse 12. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, what's that talking about? First of all, we need to stop and just make maybe a little bit of clarification here, because there are a couple of terms that are used that are going to continue to come up in Romans, so it's important that we would understand what they're all about. First of all, maybe a definition of this word justified. It is very simply this, to to be declared righteous, to be declared righteous. This is a work of God that He does in our heart in the moment when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, when we bow our knee to Him, He justifies us. Or another way to say that is that He takes our sin off of us and He puts it onto Jesus who went to the cross so that it might be taken out of the way. And we become, we take on righteousness. We become righteous. We have the righteousness of God applied to us. That's what it means to be justified. Now, another description he gives here is of the law. What he's referring to is something called the Mosaic Law. just means Mosaic, that it was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and sometimes it's referred to as the Torah. There's a lot of interchangeable terms here that are really referring to the same thing. That just means law, and uh, Torah is referred to. It was given on Mount, Mount Sinai. It's found in the first five books, or it's considered to be the first five books of the Old Testament, right? Sometimes that's referred to as the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means penta, five, and tuk, which means book, all right? So it's talking about those first five books of the Bible, which you know to be, help me out, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Absolutely. This is the law. This is the Torah. And when it's spoken of, and we're going to see it in Romans over and over again, that's what it's referring to. All of these laws that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai that the Jewish people, the Israelites, were responsible to live by. So what's that got to do with what we're talking about here? These were given to the Jews. Paul says They were not given to the Gentiles, so the Gentiles aren't going to be held responsible for living up to the law. And in verse 14, as we're going to go on here, he says, you know what, sometimes they do live out some of those laws, not because they're responsible to live that out, not because they're going to be held responsible for it, it's just what they have done. And sometimes the conscience that we live by just leads us into, it happens to lead them into following after some of those laws. Here's what he says, verse 14. He writes, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That sounds kind of confusing, but Paul's point in all of that is just that God is going to or is not going to hold people accountable for light that they never received. He's going to hold us accountable for light that we have received, not that we don't have. If Think of it like this. If you're a student or you can remember when you were a student, for some of us we need much better memories for that. 
But if you can remember when you were a student, how would you have felt if the teacher would have put on a very important exam, a question or two or three, that weren't contained anywhere in the class notes, and it wasn't in the reading? You would have probably cried foul. I can remember that happening to me, and typically the, the professor or the teacher would say, well, stinks to be you, is pretty much what they would say. God will never say, stinks to be you. You can put that in your notes. You should put that in your journal, right? In case it's ever on the test. Yeah, so, so, so you'll know because we've been there, all right? God will only judge people according to the light that they have. But remember, he's given us a lot of light. Last week we looked at this. He's revealed so many things to us in different ways. We talked about revelation last week. There are two different kinds of revelation. One is general. It tells us general things about God. It's things that we can understand about God just through creation, just through the things that he has made. The, so, the, the sky and the, the sea and the, and the land and the stars and the human body and all the rest. It is clear that he adds that there has been a divine inspiration, a divine initiative to bring those things about. And it tells us a lot, about, a lot about God just through general creation. Then there's also this category of special revelation. Sometimes we call it specific revelation because it tells us specific things about God. The Bible is special revelation. The incarnation or Jesus coming into our world is special revelation because it tells us things about God, about Jesus, that we wouldn't have known any other way. It tells us about Jesus. It tells us about sin. Tells us about salvation. It tells us about judgment, like we are thinking about here. And in relation to that judgment, the last piece that he tells us here in these verses is that God judges the secrets of our heart. He judges the secret of our heart. The witness of our heart is very revealing because there are times when we might suggest that, that we're doing something for someone because it's out of the care and compassion that we have in our heart when really deep down inside, it's not that. What it's really about is that we might be applauded by the people who will see it or maybe that We'll somehow have our reputation bolstered. We're trying to manipulate the way that people think about us or to build our own ego. Paul is just saying that our motives are going to be examined as well. So it's not just about trying to manipulate ideas or people or even God, because God knows. He knows what you're in that for. And oftentimes we receive that blessing in that moment of, of being lauded or applauded or whatever the case is. And he is saying, no, your, your motives need to be pure and honorable if you desire that in that day of the judgment seat of Christ that it's going to be something that is looked on with grace from God. Okay, so I know, challenging passage, right? It's not very fun to think about judgment, but Paul's point here to bring all of this up isn't to make us afraid, it's to make us aware so that we would know, so that we can anticipate what it is that is coming. Romans is all about the good news of who Jesus is and that he's come to save us, and Paul has given us a little taste of that in chapter 1, and, and there's a lot more that is yet to come, but to really understand just how good the good news is, we need to understand the reality of judgment. Because here's the thing. If we don't grasp the concept of judgment, we'll never grasp the concept of grace. If we don't grasp the concept of judgment, 
we'll never grasp the concept of grace. Because if we just believe that we are people who, of course God's going to like me, of course God is going to treat me well in the future, of course, yeah, my sin, they're just little sins. It's just disobedient to parents. It's not murder. It's not deceit. If we put ourselves in that place where he started all of this passage by saying, I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself, we're not understanding the nature of judgment which means we'll never come to understand grace because we'll never understand the need that we have and we'll never understand all of what it cost Jesus, what it required of God to take our sin out of the way. And if we don't understand that there is a judgment coming, we're never going to understand what God has done for us in the gospel and through grace. Unlike one of my college professors, understand, folks, that God's desire is not to catch us off guard and make us look bad. He always tried to do that. That is not what God is doing. In fact, he desires just the opposite. Look back at verse 4. I kind of skipped over this. I don't know if you noticed, but it's important that we would go back to it now. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's good news. Paul wants us to keep in mind all that God has done for us through His Son, Jesus, who came into the world to offer a way that we might be made righteous. That's why He came. That's why He gave us revelation in the first place. Not so that we might be judged, but so that we might escape the judgment, so we might set ourselves up for that day, that we'll be walking in faith and walking in harmony and walking as a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ. He's waking us up. That's what this passage is about, so that we would be clear on what is coming, that we would be clear on what is going to be or what is required of us. We are not people who can say, well, I didn't know. How was I to know that that was going to be on the test? Well, we know because Paul points it out. You can see here that the, the title of this message, Getting What You Deserve. Getting What You Deserve. It sounds like a lot of judgment, doesn't it? You're going to get what you deserve. But please notice that I've got a question mark at the end of that. Getting what you deserve. Because what Paul is saying to us is he wants to put us in a place where we're not going to get what we deserve. What we deserve is indeed the wrath of God, the judgment of God, separation from God forever. But that's not what he is offering us here. According to verse 4, it's the riches of his kindness. He's offering us that so that we might escape the wrath of God in patience with us, he says as well. Why is that? So that we might be able to become doers of the word and not hearers only. We need to be on our knees we need to ask ourselves, God, how is it that my motives really are operating? What is it that I am doing? How is it that you would look on my life and examine where I am and what I'm going and the ways that I'm using the gifts and the talents and the abilities that you have given me? Am I moving forward in such a way that is bringing honor to your name and ultimately is going to have some reason for some positive reward when... I stand before you, or is my life one that the things that I am doing are going to be burned up? We need to do this examination of our heart, and as we do so, 
doing it in a spirit that is grateful to God for the fact that he has shown us his kindness, that he has pointed the way through his revelation to show us how to move our way forward, to prepare ourselves for that day because he desires us to pass with flying colors. And the fact that he set us up for that at all requires gratitude in our heart for the work of Jesus, for the gospel that we might have faith in the first place and then patience so that we might move ourselves in the direction of being doers of the word and not hearers only. What he has done for us is gracious. It is the abundant grace of God. And as we all know, what does grace do? Grace changes everything. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the grace that you offer. We think about a subject like judgment, and it seems like somebody mean is the one who judges, and we've been that ourselves toward other people. But that's not what we see in you. It sounds mean. It sounds heavy-handed. But Lord, help us to recognize and understand we desire justice. We want things to be made right. And you're able to accomplish the fullness of that while at the same time offering us every opportunity to escape the wrath that is to come on those who do not believe and to set ourselves up at a place where we will experience the rewards that you have in store because you've blessed us in so many ways. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to do this examination of our own mind and heart, that we would recognize where we are, that we would ask ourselves, what is the evidence that is present in my life following faith in Jesus? Is there enough to demonstrate that there's been an inward change that's taken place in me? And if my answer is, I don't know, or I don't think so, we need to consider whether or not we're believers in Jesus to begin with. Because we want to escape that great white throne when there will be ultimate and eternal separation from God. Friend, if you're in that position right now where you don't know or you're pretty sure there's not or there's no evidence of the fact that there's been a change that's transpired or taken place in your heart, that I encourage you now to embrace that gospel, to pray, confessing your sin to God, asking for his forgiveness, and putting your trust in him by grace and through faith. I'd love to talk to you more about the specifics of all of that. But Lord, move us today in a direction of introspection and where we sit in judgment on other people while we deserve judgment ourselves because we're in the same position. Forgive us. Open our eyes that we would recognize where we do that, whether it be at school, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in the neighborhood, whether it be at church, whether it be in our homes. Convict us. Open our eyes to our judgmental spirit so that we might, might walk in harmony 
with your desire for us. Lord, thank you for Paul's calling us out on this. We just pray we'd be humbled enough to receive it, that we might find ourselves in a better place with you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.